Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome back to the latest episode of the Book of Joe podcast with me, Tom Verducci, and Joe Madden. And Joe, this is going to be our Hall of Fame edition of the Book of Joe podcast. A lot to dive into, but before we get there, uh, you and I are both fans of playing and watching golf. And I just wanted to touch on the incredible achievement of a young man named Nick Dunlap, who won on the PGA Tour, the American Express event last week. He's a 20-year-old sophomore, an amateur at the University of Alabama. He's the first amateur to win a PGA Tour event in 33 years. Phil Mickelson was the last to do it. And Joe, I want to get your take on this because you have seen young men get to the major leagues like a Javi Baez who just have that it factor who look like they belong. Like there's no break-in period. There's no awe. I'm watching this kid going up to the 18th hole, and he's playing with Sam Burns and Justin Thomas, two guys who have won on the PGA Tour, who are veterans of the PGA Tour, and he owned the place. I mean, I was just incredible. So for you, Joe, when you see guys at a precocious age, you know, hold their own without experience – what is it that allows people like that to succeed without experience? Well, um, obviously self-confidence. So where is that derived from? And the fact that, um, you know, I, I think naturally when you're at that age, you do come with blinders attached. I mean, you're not seeing the whole picture. You don't process everything, which is a good thing. So there's a, a point where you think maybe the youth should be a detriment, but at, by the same time, it could be something a positive, but that's, I think it's rare. I mean, but I still think that that's a possibility. And I think that's part of what you're seeing. I, my best example I can give you of all that, you talked about hobby, whatever, but 1985, maybe, 84, 85, Wally Joyner, Wallace Keith. I actually was a scout that drafted Wally into the Angel organization. So we were pretty close. We still are. And I remember in spring training, the one year he walked up to me, we're taking BP down at the cages, and he said, um, I'm going to take Caruso, uh, I'm going to take Caruso spot this year. I'm going to, supplant Rodney I'm going to be the first baseman I said no you're not but I said you know what it's great that you believe that and that's wonderful and yes you will eventually but not yet so there's that really taught me a lesson there he 
who had, you know, Wally uh, BYU out of Marietta, Georgia, a nice player, went down to the third round. People were off him because they thought his power was low, below, but his glove and everything else were good. But what they did measure with Wallace Keith was the the uh, self-confidence level. And that is like, I didn't know it was that great, actually, as a, as a signing scout either. I can't admit to that. But that was the big thing that propelled him. He's good. He was really good. But man, he had this inner thing about him that he was able to keep the blinders on. He thought he was the best. He went out and played like he was the best. And he believed that he belonged there. That's the level three we talk about. Five levels of being a professional. Level one, happy to be here. And level two, survival. I like this. I want to stay here. And you want to get the guy to level three. I belong here. I can do this as quickly as possible. So when a guy like Dunlap just jumps right into level three, Wallace Keith right, jumped right into level three. Uh, there's guys that are like that. And uh, there's this, this strong sense of uh, belief in themselves. Um, and it's just, normally it needs to be nurtured. And when it already comes kind of like equipped with it, that he already got that bells and that bell and whistle already attached to him. That's pretty solid. So that's, that's how I see it. It's, it, it, it's not normal. Uh, but then again, I could see it. And my God, I mean, what he did is ridiculous. I'm just, I think there's going to be a, a resurgence in Dunlap golf equipment after that. <laughs> That's a name from the past. Right. Um, yeah. I'm glad you brought up um, sort of nurtured because for the most part, I think with a lot of these guys, it is nature. It's innate in a lot of these people who just are wired that way. But I believe, Joe, that what we're seeing with Nick Dunlap and what we're seeing with some major league players now, because there were more players 23 and under last year who had 23 home runs than ever before in the history of the game. I do think the sort of nurture part of it now is is greater. In other words, in sort of amateur baseball, social media, whatever you want to call it, people now are playing under microscopes and under a lot more attention as they come up through the ranks than they did when you were on the mean streets of Hazleton, PA, right? You get exposed to a lot more. And I think the idea of experience in the major leagues, while it's wonderful, I think the lack of it now is overrated when it comes to a player's ability to get his feet on the ground and to belong in the major leagues. I just think the preparation to get there now exposes these players to so much in terms of high competition, bright lights, three-decked stadium, um, critical media, you name it, expectations – there's not they're not babes in the woods anymore when they get the, the big leagues of 2021. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I listen to interviews sometimes with these really young guys doing interviews. That's exactly what you're talking about. And I say to myself, damn, I could have I would have never have been able to express myself as well as that kid did at 22, 23, 24. I think it is a product of, of the way media is handled today and social media in particular, where these guys are constantly exposed to like being interviewed at earlier ages or they're constantly in front of the camera on a cell phone even, and they're performing in front of the cell phone comfortably. They get to this particular level of, you know, actually it's a real camera, a real interviewer, a real major league situation. It's not as daunting or as intimidating as it once had been. I mean, growing up with us, we didn't see the games all the time. We didn't get to ballparks all the time. We didn't know what a big league player looked like all the time except for occasionally maybe once a week on TV. So there was more of a being in awe of these people, like they were uh, otherworldly, they were superhuman, they did not put their pants on one leg at a time. We thought all that stuff. So when you came in contact with them, my God, it was, it was, it was larger than life, way larger than life. I don't think that happens anymore based on the way 
uh, media is presented today and how ubiquitous it is and how these kids can get out there and, and actually rehearse in a way that we never rehearsed in the past. From my perspective, where I grew up and my parents and my mom especially, if she thought I was getting a little bit too you know, big for my britches, damn, you get put down pretty quickly. And I'm not saying that I was necessarily, but it was just a perception. And uh, I don't think that's the, tr- the case anymore. Uh, the way you know parents and travel teams and the way they're spending all this money on their kids to promote them either to be a professional player or at least get them into college. I mean, my God, my dad could have never have afforded that method for me back in the day to expose me to uh, what is a higher level of ball, travel teams, whatever you want to call it. So they're just, they're being bred in a different way. Good, bad, or indifferent, I don't know. But I'm just saying, I think all of this preps them to be able to deal with this as well as they're dealing with it at an early age today. And that brings us to the Hall of Fame voting results that were announced this week mm-hmm. and the path to Cooperstown for the three people who did exceed the 75% threshold for induction to the hall of fame, Adrian Beltre, Todd Helton, Joe Maurer. And I think about Adrian Beltre, obviously signed out of the Dominican Republic. His father was a baseball player. He knew at an early age, he was going to be a baseball player. His one and only love was baseball, dedicated himself to that. And he said he knew by the time he was about 13 years old, he was going to make a living playing baseball. And then there's Todd Helton and Joe Maurer, kind of the old school Joe in that, you know, they were three sport athletes. Joe Maurer was the number one rated high school quarterback in Minnesota uh, across the country, had a scholarship offer to play for Bobby Bowden at Florida State, was an all-metro point guard for the basketball team. And of course, he was just all-world as a catcher for his high school team. And Todd Helton wound up playing both sports at the University of Tennessee. In fact, started a quarterback ahead of Peyton Manning, although, as Todd Helton said himself, uh, there were days during football practice where he'd leave early and go hit in the cage. Uh, He knew his future (laughs) was in baseball and not in football. But one of those or two of those guys have backgrounds that we don't see a lot of, the multi-sport athlete. First of all, Joe, your quick take on the class of 2024, Adrian Beltre, Mm -hmm. Todd Helton, Joe Maurer. All deserving, obviously. I mean, Beltre beat us up when he was with Texas with the Rays. He had that three-home run game in one of the playoff games down at the Trop. Um, his, his career was kind of unique in the sense that he got off to uh, kind of a really good start. Then he kind of like faded, and you didn't know what was going to happen with him. And then eventually re, he reappeared and blossomed and became a force. Uh, defensively, as good as it gets. Uh, he was so good and accurate with that strong arm, with that uh, – that throw and stroke that he would kind of uh, demonstrate or show off offensively, hit the ball from the right center field gap to the left center field gap extremely well, play with a lot of panache uh, and enthusiasm. So, yeah, that that's an easy makes sense to me. Joe Maurer, I mean, I've read, read some different things. Joe Maurer, when he, when he was at the top of his game, I thought this guy was going to be like one of the maybe the best catcher ever if he was able to continue to play and not get hurt. Um, he threw really well. He had a great release, very accurate. You could not really run against him. He had to be careful. Very good behind the plate, blocking the ball, everything. And his bat, I mean, the dude was such a tough out, uh, line-to-line kind of a hitter. He did not want to see him in a big moment because the ball was going to be moved and it was going to be a good at-bat given. So I've always been a big fan, but I, I don't even know that he gets talked about enough as a catcher because it was that good. And Helton, I saw a little bit, not a lot, but when I, you know, this guy, I mean, everybody's talking about, you know, hitting in Denver as opposed to anywhere else. The guy could just hit. Uh, I don't care where he would hit. He would hit. He had a great approach at the plate. 
uh, he's just one of those um, quiet kind of a baseball assassin kind of dudes. It's like very focused and directed and didn't make mistakes. Probably uh, the training of his quarterback days also at Tennessee. But all three, um, yeah, three of the three of those guys easily uh, the best of the generation of players that they grew up with um, as an opponent. Man, you did not want to see any one of them in a crucial moment because they just they're just going to put out a good at bat. And for me, like I said, Maurer took away the running game. Uh, we with the Rays, we could run, and you had to be very careful. You really had to work to get a pitcher that was slow to the plate because this guy was that good with his arm. Well, let's dive into them and start with Adrian Beltre. He got ninety five percent of the vote. I, you know, listen, it doesn't matter what percentage you get as long as you get in. I get that, and I don't like making a big deal out of you know, who didn't vote for somebody. I don't know why you would not vote for Adrian Beltre. I mean, more than 3,000 hits, more than 475 home runs, more than four gold gloves. He and Willie Mays are the only two players in baseball history to hit those three thresholds. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean he's Willie Mays. It just means he was really good at many sides of the game for a very long time. That's a Hall of Famer. Um And Joe, I want to get your take on this because when I watch guys play, I love to watch great players, you know, and and he did some things and you alluded to this that others didn't the way he would had such a strong throwing arm. He could throw flat footed and just zip the ball across the diamond, making it look easy. Uh, I thought the bare hand play coming in from third base, he made as well as anybody. He did that very athletically where he he would fall and throw Mm sidearm and just throw a bullet over the first base. And of course, I call it the wedding proposal where you would drop on one knee to take Mm -hmm. a breaking ball. It's his way of buying some time to keep his hands back, just sink into your legs like a lot of guys do. But he would sink all the way to the ground. His back knee would hit the ground, keep his hands back and take a ball out of the ballpark to sit on those slow breaking balls. Just amazing to watch this guy play. But when I think about Beltre, I think of the joy he had playing the game. This dude had fun playing the game. We all know how hard this game is, and it is a grind. And he brought such a joy that you could see that fans could share his joy for the game. And you see that in the way he posted all the time. This guy wanted to play. You look at his games played year after year after year, kept his body in good shape. You know, his defense was still good towards the end of his career. So, Uh, When I see a guy having fun playing a very difficult game, man, that just resonates with me. And I think a lot of fans really tapped into that joy. Agreed. Um, And part of that is, too, I've always felt really great players do certain things indigenous to them. Uh, If you talk about the the play where he came in and through kind of falling away, that really just activated his wrist. That's a drill I used to do with catchers, only had them throw over the top. But his coming in and then kind of like falling back was just an uh, the activated his wrist to the point where you saw those wonderful, accurate throws um, to first base, unique to him. The the genuflection, Reggie Jackson would do that on occasion too. But uh, to intentionally do that as often as he did, again, something unique to him. Stan Musial, peekaboo stance. As an example, Ted Williams, the way he hit his hands behind him a little bit. Julio Franco with his hands way above his head and brought him on down Yastrzemski. A lot of great Bob Boone, the way he sat. A lot of really good players had a physical attribute or a method of doing things that it'd be almost impossible to teach to a young kid to do. They did it themselves, which is a, speaks to their natural body movements and their athleticism. And that's what he was all about. And he did play with a lot of joy. Um, uh, Andres and him would really play off one another between third and shortstop. 
And I did. I've always appreciated that with him. I'd always like joke with him a little bit from the from the dugout. He had he had a ball. He had a blast when he played. I'd like to see more of that. This this pure. Uh, it's a joy, but it's a respectful joy. The other side could actually enjoy watching it too because he is so good. He played the game hard and with respect. He always ran hard too, man. Uh, it's just that I don't want to say the game came easily to him, but the game came more easily to him than most people. We're going to get into Todd Hilton and Joe Maurer, and there's a fourth Hall of Famer that we need to talk about also who will be inducted this summer. We'll be back with those thoughts right after this. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Book of Joe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Book of Joe. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh my, look at that, he is... And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast. We're talking Hall of Fame, and Todd Helton will be in the class of 2024. And Joe, I will admit, his first year on the ballot, um, I did not vote for him, as did a lot of people, apparently, because he got less than 20% of the vote first time on the ballot. I really had a problem with his home road splits. Playing in Colorado, of course, is a great place to hit. And it was really, really extreme when I looked at his home road splits. Um, But, you know, I reconsidered it. You know, when I looked at his career numbers, you know, the career batting average, well over 300, OPS, well over 900. He played a long time. He was sort of one of these repeaters we can count on each year to to get close to 30 homers, 100 RBIs, if not more. And what really swayed me, Joe, is I looked at something called adjusted OPS. So that's your on-base plus slugging. That's adjusted for your ballpark and the era that you're playing in, the offensive environment that you're playing in. 
And his was 133 for his career. That's really high. 100 is level even. That's your average player. So he's about 33% better than the average player. And when I looked at it, for guys who got 9,000 plate appearances, that's a long time to be playing in the big leagues, to have an OPS plus that high. He had the highest OPS plus of anybody not in the Hall of Fame, not connected to PEDs. And I said to myself, well, I'm trying to, I'm really overthinking this. <laughs> this guy's a Hall of Famer, measured against a stat that does take into account the Coors Field effect. Uh, so I've been checking his box. I'm glad to see him get in. Um, career-long Rocky. I think Larry Walker's induction helped pave the way for Todd Helton to get in as we start to understand more about park ballpark effects, especially in Denver. Um, but the other thing that strikes me about Todd Helton when you get away from the numbers, Joe, is something I know you know the scouts call barrel awareness. You know, he's got he had a way of almost taking the ball out of the catcher's glove sometimes, but also digging the ball out that was down in the zone and lifting it out of the ballpark. I mean, he was able to take pitches in so many different areas and do so many different things with them. A great two-strike hitter. Joe, give me your take on what barrel awareness means to you when it comes to a hitter like Todd Helton. Well, let me see if I could start with um, my my time in Midland, Texas. Because Midland, Texas plays a lot like Denver plays. Um, when you're at home in Midland, uh, you have one kind of swing, one kind of a mental attitude. And then say you go to, let's just say, San Antonio, or you go to uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, or Jackson, Mississippi, uh, where it's a total different reaction of the ball off the bat and just the weather environment, et cetera. So we play at home, and I think naturally the hitters were more uh, assertive, aggressive, confident, and there was more obvious lift in their swings. We go on the road, they take that same approach, and we stunk in Jackson or Little Rock, whatever, because first of all, mentally it was different, and second of all, physically it was too. So I finally wised up, and what I did was, like a couple, three, four days before we went on the road to one of those cities, batting practice was all line drive and hard ground ball BP. That's what I, in Midland, before we went on the road to these other places. I think what I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that I would bet that he made some adjustments as he, because he's pretty smart, as he figured this out, playing in Denver, then all of a sudden I go on the road, I'm not as good. What's going on? What's different here? And probably made some adjustments that permitted him to be a little bit more successful on the road. Because, man, when you play in those ballparks, hell, I played in Boulder. I was actually a power hitter in Boulder that one summer I played there in 75. It's like so different. The ball flies. There's no question it does. But more than anything, it's what you're thinking and how you feel. You feel pretty darn good. And then barrel awareness. You know, that's the thing where today's game is played in a way that that's not as important or uh, seems to not be as important because when you're just talking about the, the three true outcomes, barrel awareness is not part of that. With that, in, in today's game, it's just about, you know, trying to find a pitch that you kind of like and just go ahead, let it go, let's swing it. Let's we're, we're going for the walls, we're going for the fences. If we strike out, it's okay. I just want you to have like your strikes on in order so that you will accept the walk if it presents itself. A real kind of a barrel awareness to me is a guy that's making adjustments constantly. He knows where the barrel is, and he knows he knows how to utilize his hands, where he keeps the barrel above his hands as he takes the ball to the bat. Even on a low pitch, he's, he's going to keep the barrel above until he gets down, and then there's going to come that where he's going to want to try to lift the baseball. So I think it's a, a product of the time that he played in. I think uh, there was a lot more, many more guys that had more barrel awareness then. There are, of course, there are guys like that now. I think as we move this further along, and if strikeouts 
uh, become less acceptable than they were maybe two or three, five years ago. You're going to see more guys that you could say have great barrel awareness, choking up, looking away, uh, moving the ball to the opposite field, really literally letting, trying to take the ball out of the catcher's mitt. The farther the ball is away from your body, the deeper you let it get in order to make contact, the closer the ball is to your body, the longer the swing is because you've got to catch the ball farther out front. This is the kind of things that hitters practice that really are into uh, awareness with, with where the barrel is. And when you get guys like that, man, it's fun. I don't like foul balls with less than two strikes on pitches that you like, but I've always said foul balls with two strikes are a good thing because you're frustrating a pitcher a lot of times on a pitch that he makes. That's a good pitch. And if you have a good barrel awareness, if you can just flick that thing, Orlando Palmero, outstanding at taking a, a, a pitcher's two-strike pitch, moving it, getting it over our dugout, and all of a sudden gets to the next pitch and does something well. This is the kind of thinking that these guys go through. And that's why he was such a great hitter. I'm not, I mean, I don't know for sure if he thought in those ways, but I bet some of that was part of his thought process. And I love hitters like that. They cause the other team's pitcher to throw more pitches. Your guys see more stuff. Confidence comes back to your side. And that's where you move the conga line from one through nine and you play team offense. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah, that reminds me in today's game of Freddie Freeman. Freddie is the king of foul balls in today's mm-hmm. game. And that really is part of what makes mm-hmm. him so good. Um, and just to double up on your um, your take on Coors Field, you're dead on on that. It is a great place to hit. And not so much because the ball travels far. It's because the outfield is way too big. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you just dive balls into the outfield. There's just too much grass to defend out there. That's right. Uh, I, don't, I don't like watching games there for that reason. Nobody gets thrown out at home plate on a single. Everybody goes from first to third. Um, I remember Jim Leland saying, you know, they built the park all wrong. They should have built a, a another version of Fenway Park, built really high walls because there's too much ground to defend. And I remember Don Zimmer saying advice to managers when they go to manage there, don't start managing until like the fifth or sixth inning. That's right. <laughs> because somebody's going to give up a, a crooked number early in the game, but you can't go into your bullpen that early every single day if you're even as a visiting team with a three-game series. So 100%. 100%. Weird place to play, mm-hmm. but your point about the constant adjustment is dead on. And I've talked to guys about this, you know, as a hitter, you see, obviously the ball's not breaking as much in Denver. So when you go on the road, now the same breaking balls are spinning more. You have to recalibrate where your radar system is detecting where that ball is ending up in the hitting zone. And go think about going through that back and forth every other week in the course of a season over six months. That's tough. Final thought on that, I remember Tom Glavin telling me that he was more sore after pitching a game at Coors Field than anywhere else because he felt like he had to strain so hard to finish his pitches there. It's hard to grip the baseball, hard to get it to move the way he wanted to move. So that extra effort on every pitch is physically taxing to say nothing of, you know, you're a mile high and the oxygen depletion does have an effect when you're playing there. So Kudos to Todd Helton. Um, great place to hit, yes, but there are some downsides as well. Yeah, all of that. And and it's funny you should mention that. Um, anytime you throw a baseball or a football, whatever, you're going to throw the, the ball the best when you feel like you're not doing anything at all. Um, but you're still getting – it's almost like you know hitting a golf ball well. It's just a nice, easy, rhythmic tempo swing in golf. It's the same thing with an arm stroke in baseball or in football. You get this tempo about the way you're throwing the ball and everything just happens at the right time and the wrist 
releases and the ball snaps out. You feel it off your fingertips as you're releasing the ball. And boom, there you got your spiral, or there you got really nice back spinning four seam fastball or two seam, whatever you want to do. So, yeah, when you feel like you have to apply more effort, uh, Joe Coleman, great advice. And as a bullpen coach, I used to utilize it. When I watch the guys out there bumping and grinding uh, to try to do whatever, uh, manipulate his breaking ball, get more on his fastball, uh, the line is don't try to manufacture velocity. The moment you start attempting to, ma- to manufacture velocity, it's going to go the wrong way. You're not going to do it A, B, and then you have a chance to hurt yourself because you're doing things differently in the way that stroke is performed. So for anybody listening, any kids, whatever, yeah, uh, you got to get to that point where when your stroke is good, when, you're, when, you're, when your timing is good, your tempo is good with release, right down to the point where you I used to get like really heavy calluses on my fingertips when I threw so much BP, and I knew when my stroke was right. And it was. It was effortless, and you could throw like a half hour, 45 minutes, even more than that, every day for months at a time. It's because the rhythm was so good. The tempo was so good. There wasn't that strain at the end. And so I understand completely what he was talking about. And even for that matter, like I said, it's the same thing with swinging a, swinging a bat or a golf club. When you get that good tempo working, man, everything happens at the right moment. And that's where you get your maximum ability. And then there's Joe Maurer. You talk about hitting the ball out of the catcher's glove. Um, Joe Maurer was one of the most balanced hitters I've ever seen, Joe. Mm-hmm. And you know, I remember doing a cover story with Joe years ago for SI. And mm-hmm. you know, he talked a lot about this contraption that his dad built, the Maurer quick swing, where you would drop the ball in this little chute and it would roll down sideways and make a turn and then drop, almost like the ball was coming out of the sky. Um, and then you would hit it. It's like the reverse of hitting off a tee. The ball's actually coming down, but you're not sure when it's coming out. So you literally have to be super quick to catch this ball cleanly as it's dropping out of this chute. And it's something that, you know, Joe did, I, I don't know how young, I want to say six or seven, certainly starting out playing baseball. And when I looked at his stroke, Joe, I mean, I'm glad you said something earlier about guys do something very unique, the greats of the game, whether it's Beltre, the, the wedding proposal swing, or, or Sam Usual looking around the corner in his batting stance. And for me, it's, it's Maurer's swing. It's, it's as connected uh, of a swing as I've ever seen. Um, I, I looked the other day, Joe, when he won the MVP in 20, 2009, I looked at the outs he made, his spray chart of his outs, and almost nothing is in the right field corner. And he actually, an entire year, more than 600 plate appearances, flied out to right field, I think it was twice the entire season. You could not get Joe Bauer out front of anything, always on balance. And one quick story, Max Scherzer and Joe Bauer matched up a lot, both in the AL Central, Scherzer in those days with the Tigers, and Joe Maurer would own him. He would take changeups away, slap him to left field. He would take fastballs in and hit line drives up the middle. After years of this going on, <clears throat> Max Scherzer said, you know what? I need to invent something to get Joe Maurer out. He's hitting everything that I throw. So Max Scherzer invented the cut fastball he has today specifically to try to get Joe Maurer out. And the first time he threw it, he got Maurer to swing and miss and strike out for the first time he'd ever faced him. And I think about that story because Joe Maurer was that good that he would make someone as good as Max Scherzer say, I need to find another pitch. I need to invent another pitch to get this darn guy out. Jeter. He's the opposite of Derek Jeter. I mean, Jeter was the same way from the right side. I mean, 
everybody knew Derek was going to hit the ball from left center to the right field line all the time. Rare, if ever, did he hit the ball down in the left field corner. You knew it. And the same thing with Maurer. You knew it was going to be inside, 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 which when guys are like that, like you're talking about, they're going to take the, the ball right out of the catcher's glove. They're going to wait as long as they possibly can. They're not going to commit too soon. Um, they're going to look like they're going to be late, but I promise you they're going to keep making adjustments as the bat goes on. So they were like oppos. I mean, Jeter from the right side, Maurer from the left side. They're really tough, and it's hard to get a hitter disciplined enough to really want to adopt that kind of approach. But also when it comes down to the way hitting is taught, of course, um, there's a lot of guys that just wanted you to pull the ball too, and that's to, to realize your maximum power potential. So it's like, what do you want? What do you want from this guy? What's he going to bring to bear? Is he just going to be pure power? I want to get the ball up in the air. I want to pull it as much. Or is this guy just a good hitter that we're going to sacrifice some power to really benefit from all the different things that he can do, manipulating the head of the bat, letting the ball travel a little more deeply, utilizing the whole field. And that's that's what these guys did. So when you go to a spring training, you got your group, kids coming up, you're as a scout. What is this guy? What is this guy? Tim Salmon. Tim Salmon, outstanding at driving the right center field gap when I had him young. And still, t- I kept it, but although he learned to pull the ball. Damian Easley, same thing. Garrett Anderson, left center field gap. Jimmy Edmonds, left center field gap. Uh, these are the kind of things I've always looked at. And I've, quite frankly, for me, a young hitter, if you could draft uh, a young hitter that you really dig on that drives the oppo gap first, because I think it's much easier to teach a guy to pull the ball as opposed to trying to teach him to really drive the opposite field gap. When you see those guys young, those guys can be very attractive and good hitters. Yeah, that makes me think of Don Mattingly. He was that way, mm-hmm. and he actually went to winter ball in Puerto Rico and started to learn how to pull the ball, and then power shows up. Yep. The ability to get the barrel on the ball mm-hmm. was there. Um, and certainly Maurer was that case. I mean, he never hit for a lot of power, Joe, but I, I was surprised people were surprised that he's a first ballot, first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, he's one of the best hitting catchers of all time, and I realized he had to get out from behind the plate because of concussions, but there's only been 153 players who have caught 900 games in the big leagues. He's one of those. If you take that whole universe of catchers who caught that much in the big leagues, he has the third highest OPS in baseball history among those catchers. Only Mike Piazza and Mickey Cochran, both Hall of Famers, are ahead of him. I mean, that's a Hall of Famer. Come on. No, no surprise, absolutely. And here's the other thing with Joe Maurer. He was drafted – Number one overall by the Minnesota Twins. We talked about he was a three-sport athlete. But, Joe, at that time, if you can believe this, even in Minnesota, the Twins were criticized for not taking Mark Pryor instead of Joe Maurer. Pryor's coming out of USC, and he looks like the next Tom Seaver. He is the finished product. Joe Maurer is a high school catcher. It's going to take some developing. People thought the Twins were being cheap by not signing, drafting, Mark Pryor. Pryor goes to the Cubs at number two, gets a signing bonus of $10.5 million, a record at that time. Joe Maurer at number one signs with the Twins for about half of that. Now listen, maybe the Twins did have finances in mind when they made this decision. Uh, but Joe, I, you know, a lot of people talked about Pryor being a sure thing. He's a pitcher. They're always one injury away from being less than an impact player. Mm-hmm. And at the time, people talked about Pryor's mechanics. He actually had a flaw in his delivery. He was a little late loading the baseball, and it certainly caught up with him. He could not stay healthy. He was dead at the age of 25. Joe Maurer had this repeatable swing, off-the-charts makeup, 
premium position. I was surprised going back on it, how much criticism the Twins got for drafting Joe Maurer. And I think about the draft last year with Paul Skeens and Dylan Cruz, teammates at, at LSU. Given the history, Joe, because no number one draft pick as a pitcher has ever made the Hall of Fame. And Maurer is now the fourth to do so as a position player. I would always, and I mean always, lean towards the position player. I would have taken Cruz over this, over Skeens. And that's not a knock on, the, on Skeens. He's going to be really, really good for Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. But I just think when you have an elite position player, an everyday player, for the long haul, I'm going with that guy over the pitcher. Hey, especially that position, uh, just uh, think Buster Posey also, right? Uh, when you have a, uh, a high school catcher that you really feel that strongly about with that kind of a body, that kind of athleticism, and on top of that, he hits left-handed. I mean, that was the thing uh, growing up as a young scout, too. Left-handed hitting catchers were like at a premium. If you could find one of those things, that was like really kudos to you. So this guy had all that plus the leadership component. He had everything going on for him. So I could understand you know, why they might talk about USC and the, the amount of money, whatever, for prior. But I think if you're going to run an expansion group, it's almost like if you could find a catcher, uh, like I always thought, Pudge Rodriguez, my God, you'd want to start an organization with him back when he was uh, first starting out. If you get a catcher, that's for real. Buster Posey, if he's for real, and you could determine that. This is the guy you want to build everything else around, Johnny Bench. I mean, you could go on and on about, you know, Thurman Munson, whatever. I mean, all these guys are the guys you wanted to build the whole group around. They're not easy to find. I mean, these guys, well, I mean, I, as a, yes, I would absolutely want to, if I felt really strongly about it, I definitely would want that catcher over a starting pitcher. If I felt that strongly about him being like my centerpiece for years to come, because those guys are invaluable. Hey, Joe, what position did you play? (laughs) It's quarterback. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, by the way, the other three number one picks who reached the Hall of Fame, can you name them? Can I? Uh, number- Besides, Joe Maurer was the fourth, so there was three before him. Pick wow. number one in the draft wound up in the Hall of Fame. Dude, uh, Tom Seaver? No. Was that? <clears throat> he was a special draft pick by the New York Mets. Okay. Uh, supplemental Jeez. draft. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr. You got it. Okay. Um, the man you invented the shift for. That's right. Ken Griffey Jr. Um, it's going to take me a while to... Go ahead. It'll take me too long. Well, one is Chipper Jones, okay, who was lucky enough, like Joe Maurer, to play his career with one team, Atlanta mm-hmm. Braves, of course. And the other recently, Harold Baines, number one pick. Really? Yeah, but think about Joe Maurer. He's the only one mm-hmm. in the history of this game. He's drafted by his hometown team, number one overall, never plays another day for another team, and goes to the Hall of Fame. I mean, how storybook is that? <laughs> that's the way you draw it up when you're a kid. Absolutely. No question. He's, and, and like you were saying earlier about, uh, you know, maybe there was some reticence with all that. I mean, he, you know, playing your, your whole career in Minnesota, you know, he's not going to get the same kind of publicity. Some of these guys are going to get on the different coasts, et cetera. So there's a kind of an obscurity to what he had done, but I promise you one thing, if you're in any other dugout, there's nothing obscure about Joe Mott. Absolutely. Hey, we'll take a quick break, but before I mention, we had a fourth Hall of Famer who's going in, and uh, we'll talk about him when we get back. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? 
And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Okay, Joe, so this summer in Cooperstown, New York, we'll be sitting there listening to the Hall of Fame speeches of Adrian Beltre, Todd Helton, Joe Maurer, and the fourth, Jim Leland, who was inducted by the Eras Committee. Uh, I can't wait for that speech. I mean, uh, I don't know about you, Joe, but I'm expecting Jim Leland to cry in the course of that speech. Um, a very deserving Hall of Famer. I always thought, you know, there are certain players and very few managers, while they're doing what they're doing, you think to yourself, I'm watching a Hall of Famer. And I felt that way about Jim Leland. Of course. Um, listen, I, I got to know Jimmy through Don Zimmer. I mean, of course, I knew who Jim was. and um, uh, But Zim and him were really tight. So that's that's how I got my in with Jim. And then here came the time where you have to manage against him. And I'm the young manager with the Rays. And I swear to God, I mean, I... You you go into that game and you're apps. It's it's like it's having to know where so and so was on the court at all times or on the field at all times, uh, as an athlete as a player. You just you just gave him that much uh, respect. The fact that he's got to know something that I don't know. He's got to see something that I don't see. That's that's how I walked I walked into that game, uh, the first time I think it was in Detroit. So he had all that going on, and then when you talk to him. Uh, it was so identifiable. I mean, is the way he came up and the way he came up were very similar where we came from, our backgrounds, all that was very similar. And so when you manage against somebody like that, and I've always said this, a guy that's really rooted in, in a strong minor league background, heads up, because uh, these guys have tried everything on backfields and outposts and whatever, and they've seen everything and they've, uh, they've wrote, written a lot of buses and, uh, you know, they're, they're not they're not uh, going to shy away from a tough conversation. They're not getting an umpire's face. All this stuff about him, you had to pay attention. And that was my um, thought when we, we managed again, when I managed against him, it was, it was just different. It was just different knowing he was in a dugout. I felt that way about Pinella. I felt that way about Boach. There's certain guys that, listen, I respect everybody. No, don't get me wrong. But there's others that, hmm. They, they, they really, it's, it's like uh, when you face a good pitcher as a hitter, they just bring out the best in you, I think, because you're not going to, you're not going to sit back. You're not going to relax at all because you believe they're not going to miss anything. Thus, you cannot miss 
you got to stay on top of your stuff too. Yeah, you mentioned similarities, Joe, and that they are striking. I mean, both of you guys more than paid your dues before you got a chance in the big leagues. Uh, Jim Leland managed, I believe, 20 years, mm-hmm. managed and coached 20 years in the minor leagues. You know, he came up and earned his dues and mm-hmm. and waited. And as you said, you never wanted anything before your time. There's certainly no sense of entitlement for people like you and Jim Leland. You earned what you got, and I think your players all respected that. And Jim Leland is now only the fourth manager to go in the Hall of Fame who never played a day in the big leagues. Think about that. I mean, it's hard enough just to get a big league job, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, without having that on your resume. The fact that you were a major league player, which, let's face it, that, that gets you a foot in the door. It, ge- it gives you a reputation to, that you can kind of work off of. Frank Silly, Joe McCarthy, Earl Weaver, Jim Leland, the only four managers never played a day in the big leagues and made it to the Hall of Fame. And... The other similarity you have with Jim, uh, Joe, is your ability to turn different franchises around. Uh, I think only you and Jim Leland have been able to take teams that lost 100 games, two franchises that lost 100 games, and have them playing in the World Series just a couple of years later. That's <laughs> Doing it once is hard enough to do that twice. So I see a lot of parallels in your careers and, um, you know, hopefully there's a day where you're recognized as Jim Leland is going to. And as I said, Jim Leland, I can't wait for that speech because I know everybody who has played for Jim Leland loves Jim Leland. And they do that out of as much respect as it is admiration. By that, I mean, he's not afraid to call out Barry Bonds, but he's also going to put his arm around you. And you've used a similar line, Joe, and I'll, I'll quote Jim Leland. Mm-hmm. sounds like he stole it from you, but I'm sure you both came up with this originally. If you mislead a player, you lose them forever. If you tell them the truth, you lose them for about 24 hours. Right on. I mean, yeah, that's that's the thing. My line would be, if I, if I tell you the truth, you might not like me for a week or 10 days, but if I lie to you, you're going to hate me forever. It's, it's truth tellers. Jim is a truth teller. Don Zimmer was a truth teller. Uh, Marcel Latchman is a truth teller. The best people I've ever worked with are truth tellers. And for for me, that means not easy. (laughs) You know, don't ask them the question because you're going to get the answer. So if you have really thin skin, you might not want to ask the question of people like this. And I love, I love, uh, you know, running things offered by people like these people we just mentioned. I love that. I love, I love the straight up answer. Um, I don't need to be uh, coddled with all of that. And that's what you get from these guys. I think a real professional wants to hear that. He needs to hear that. That's how you do get better. And, and, and like you said, you can, still, you can still put your arm around a dude, and you know when it's time to do that. You know, you don't kick somebody when they're down ever. And that's even like when we talked about having team meetings. For me, just because we've lost a couple of games, that's the worst probable time, I think, to have a meeting. If you really want to get on a group, get on a group after they've been successful a little bit, like that time I talked to you about, in Kansas City with the um, the Rays when we were doing really well in 2008. And all of a sudden, I thought we had a we won, but we had a bad day and we're on the road. And I told Davey, get him in the clubhouse. This is the right time. And I went absolutely ape crap on these guys because it was the right time to do it. When the teams lost five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten in a row, which I did, we did a couple years ago with the Angels, um, to me, that's when individual kind of stuff is more necessary or players need to get together as a group. And that's where they need me to be consistent and see that I got their back. I understand what's going on. Now, listen, if there's a lack of effort, if I perceive a lack of effort, that's different. Uh, that's when you, then it does require intervention. But 
if you think things are in order and they're, everything, they obviously are uh, trying, it's just not working out, a lot of bad luck happening, whatever. It's a different tact. And that's why you have to have your, your, your thumb on the pulse all the time. And you have to make these kind of determinations based on what you're seeing, what you believe, and not to be influenced by those around you that, you know, their sensibilities, because they've never done it before, want you to get angry or upset or fire on somebody or fire somebody. Not true, man. It's not necessary. Every situation is different. Every person is different. Requires a, a different kind of tact based on, for me, a lot of experience. So Jimmy was and is great at that. And I've enjoyed my conversations with him. And I did. I did text him after he got in the, into the Hall of Fame as he was elected. He got right back at me. I'm really happy for him and his family. But, Joe, let me ask you this. Uh-huh. There's the famous video of Jim Leland airing out Barry Bonds yes. in spring training on the field, yes. right? Mm-hmm. You know, Bonds was moping around. He was tired of the Pirates taking the arbitration. He actually, <laughs> you know, said some things about or to the coaching staff, which Jimmy didn't want to hear. And he and Jimmy finally had enough. And, yeah, there were cameras and microphones, and they picked it up. Jimmy said he was tired of kissing his butt. <laughs> Basically told him, you don't like it, get out of here. So my question is, could anything like that happen today? And I'm not talking about having cameras there. I'm talking about in this day and age right. where players are used to always being complimented, right? I, and I don't think there's a lot of players who play today who feel like there's a certain fear of letting down their manager, and that's part of their motivation. It's more like, tell me what I'm doing right. Keep, you know, be positive with everything. And can that happen today? Does any manager dare call out a player. Listen, I, I've been through situations and press conferences with Dallas Green and Billy Martin and Davey Johnson calling out their players publicly very often. It was not unusual. It never happens now. So mm-hmm. even without cameras around, without a press conference, without microphones, could that happen where a manager actually goes after a player the way Jim Leland did Barry Bonds? Can that happen today? I don't know that it can. I, I honestly, um, I'm thinking as you're talking about it, only because there'd be a banding against the manager among the group. Um, that would be my first take. And you'd have to be really certain of this. In the eyes, if the manager knows in the eyes of the rest of the group that whomever this player is or this person is absolutely at fault here, whereas the players can actually see and understand that you might be able to do that. But if it's not clear cut, it would almost, it would absolutely backfire, I believe, the only chance would be somebody with a great amount of cachet. Like in today's game, that would be, probably be Boach. Probably the only guy left that, I don't want to say could get away with that, but could get away with that. Otherwise, they will band together. Everybody, here's what happens. Everybody looks for allies. When you, if you go after, not necessarily go after, but if you attack or whatever you want, however you want to describe it, a player, then there's going to be a, a, this search for allies to get, come together with whomever this person is. And they all rally around this player and say, do you believe he said that about so-and-so or a guy? And, and at that point, it becomes, wow, it, it becomes uh, highly detrimental and it infiltrates the fabric of the whole group. And before you know it, they can't shut you down. I don't know what happened in Milwaukee right now with the Bucks. Maybe you know better than me. But I mean, that was a classic example. I, I don't know anything, but I just, what I read, how this group, it seems a bandit to get rid of their coach, uh, the other day when I was uh, watching the Eagles game, we've talked about this. It really looked that way to me. And I'll say that time saying it now. I mean, it was really 
frightful in the sense that it looked as though that team obviously quit on their coach. Whatever reason, I don't know. That would be the problem, and and I, I think it could happen because today's player is not used to hearing that kind of stuff. Um, they they do kind of crumble as opposed to fight in a good way back when you receive that kind of criticism. Quite frankly, you know, I, I played for a lot of guys like that, and I I kind of like it. And I still want you to tell me when you think I stink, Tommy. You need to tell me I stink, and I want to hear that. And I think that's a good thing. But a lot of guys today cannot handle they cannot handle that. And with the way social media is generated now, and the ally component within a clubhouse, it'd be very hard for a manager without any kind of cachet and even with to go about his business that way. I agree with you, and I think the important the way the way to frame that uh, incident with Barry Bonds is that those two guys were and remain very very tight. Barry yeah. Bonds said, "I would have went through a brick wall for that man, and I would still do it today." And I would be shocked if when Jim Leland stands up there in Cooperstown in July and makes his speech, I'd be shocked if Barry Bonds is not there. Mm-hmm. I, he means that much to so many players, including the guy he aired out. <laughs> with cameras on the field in Bradenton, Florida, that spring training. That tells you a lot about Jim Leland, that you can do something like that and still have tremendous respect from the player. Let me tell you, well, I had one incident, I'm not going to say who it was, but with, with the Rays, and I got really upset with somebody during a game. And again, it's another situation. I said, Dave, you get him in my, my office right after the game. He did. And we had a nice shouting session, real nice. Um, no holds barred, both sides. Um, and I let him know what I thought, no uncertain terms. And um, within a couple of days, uh, and then since then, real close to the point where like a couple of years later, gets in touch, thanking me about this, thanking me about that. I would have never had suspected that. So a lot of times through confrontations like that, there is a lot of respect regarding that. Because I'd much, I'd much rather, you'd much rather hear it from whomever, the source, as opposed to hearing all that criticism from somebody else said about you. And that's where a lot of people don't get it, man. I mean, that's what it comes down to leadership and having the difficult conversations. When they pass that conversation off to an associate to have with that particular player person, never comes out well. You need to have that conversation yourself. You need to auger out time and have that conversation yourself. For as tough as it is, you need to get that done. I, almost 100% of the time, whomever that's with and how, how hot it might get, I don't know, maybe like I said, a week or 10 days, a couple of weeks and maybe a year. By the end of it, you're going to come back with a really tight friend because you shot him straight or he shot you straight and both sides appreciate it. Well, congratulations. I can't wait um, for the speeches. They're always, if you've never seen it, uh, you, you got to tune in because they're never disappointing when guys get up there and they, they just reflect on their baseball lives, getting the, the highest honor in the game. Some move to tears. Some are incredibly funny. Um, a guy like Ted Simmons was like this incredible statesman up there, the way he delivered his speech. Um, if you haven't seen it, check them out. This year it'll be Adrian Beltre, Todd Helton, Joe Maurer, and Jim Leland. And believe me, it'll be worth your time. It will not be Billy Wagner. Unfortunately, he missed by just five votes and has one more year left on the ballot. The most dominating closer of all time when it comes to just suppressing offense. Lowest batting average against, highest strikeout rate. Billy Wagner, one of the premier specialty closers. As the position began to change, Billy Wagner did that as well as anybody in terms of 
just being a handful to bat against. So hopefully his season or his year is coming next year with an induction in his last year on the writer's ballot. Tommy, can I ask you one, can I ask you one question? Yeah. Is war that valuable of a, of a, a tool right now to regarding uh, why somebody is considered good or not good? I mean, I know I've read about his war it was kind of minuscule, which is almost difficult to understand. Why has that become such a um, indicator of greatness? And cause it's an, I, I don't even know how it's generated. You probably, you know, much better than I do, but it's become such a popular phrase that's utilized, uh, to the point it's, it's, it's it, again, it's become ubiquitous in the sense that it's kind of the, the way that we're going to measure a baseball player now um, to you. Because, you again, you have to do voting. You, you, you study this stuff more than I do. I've noticed. And I, 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 I do. I do look at that sometimes when people are talking about one guy being better than the other. But I know that Billy Wagner's where is like not even 30. I mean, how does that happen? And is it that important? Yeah, it's a great point, Joe. And especially for pitchers, war is sort of useless. You know, war puts a great premium if you play defensively in the middle of the field. And I get it on the importance of the spectrum of defense, you know, that you play in the middle of the field, as you mentioned with Maurer catching, that's important. So it's not really helpful in terms of pitching. Mm -hmm. And it, it skews numbers overall. It's a really good rule of thumb. It's an attempt. It's literally an attempt. It's not a measurement. It's an attempt to boil somebody's value down to one number using offense and defense and combining those. But it, it's so flawed that the, if you just – and this is the mistake writers make. They'll use it as an actual measurement – and it's not. It's a good rule of thumb. Mm -hmm. If you think that uh, that Lou Whitaker was a better player than Yogi Berra or Reggie Jackson, you'd be laughed out of the room. But that's what war tells you. And people look at Andrew Jones. And a lot of people voted for Andrew Jones. I did not. To believe his war is to believe literally that he was twice as good defensively as Willie Mays. He was twice as good as Willie Mays on defense. I'm sorry. I'm not buying that. I saw Devon White, Joe. You saw him. I saw Torrey Hunter. <laughs> Andrew Jones was great. That's right. He wasn't twice as good as Torrey Hunter and Devon White, never mind Willie Mays. So the, the faith that writers are putting in war, to me, is mind-boggling. Because, it, as I said, it's just a rule of thumb. It's an attempt. It's an approximation. It is not a measurement. And people are, are defining players by this number like he's better because he's got a higher war. Stop it. It's not true. I mean, these are the people who would look at the Sistine Chapel ceiling and break it down in terms of uh, the colors and the science of it and uh, you know, breaking it down scientifically and saying, my God, that's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. So you've, you've got to look at it with an artistic eye and not just a scientific one. Uh, could I drop an amen on that if we're going to talk about the Sistine Chapel? <laughs> I mean, these are the kind of things that bother me a bit. And it's, it's totally void of uh, really kind of scouting or understanding what you're seeing. Uh, if you're going to start relying on numbers uh, solely to evaluate what you're seeing, then you're missing the most important part of it. I, I've always thought about baseball scouting as an inexact science because I grew up that way. And to me, without my scouting background, it could have never lasted or done as well in the game as I have. And it is. It's in, an inexact science. And it is about body movement and observation and watching for, uh, for lack of a better term, body language. Be a set aside from 
again, natural skills, which you can look for arm strength, speed, whatever. They're all combined and you just can't, to, to reduce it to a number, I don't, it just doesn't do it enough. That doesn't do it nearly enough justice, obviously. So, you know, I appreciate your, your um, explanation on that because I see that and I hear that and I read that constantly. And they always reference war as though it's biblical. No, it's not. It's um, somebody's mathematical equation. And even like, I, I don't get to see it, but I, you know, I hear a lot of times like, you know, uh, those that are writing about the game, game in progress upstairs, they're so locked into their technology and their, and their followers in regards to how to generate a story as opposed to really watching the game. Because the game is normally commented on based on a bullpen pitcher, relief pitcher, either doing well or poorly. Um, it's not ever about the execution of the game itself, different game situations that maybe uh, the seminal moment was a, a moment that happened in the fifth or sixth inning based on either a choice that a player made or a manager made or whatever. But it's always about bullpen and whether a relief pitcher was good or not good or got the job done or did not get done. So we, we've really, uh, sophistic, sophisticatedly, we have not, we're not promoting the game properly to the fans. And I think that's why this reduced, part of why it's been reduced to the level that it has, because there's not a sophistication and it's a sophisticated game. It's a real thinking man's game. It's not, it's not just so obvious that you could rely on one number and then just determine who's good and not good. Anyway, that's my diatribe, but I appreciate your response. I'll give you an amen to that. Well said. Now I'm going to ask okay. you to be our Billy Wagner and close this edition of the Book of Joe out. You've always, you always do a great job, and uh, this is our Hall of Fame edition. So don't blow this one, Joe. You got to close this one out. Okay, you're, you've seen the heard the group Semisonic, but it was also yes. uh, began with a dude by the name of Seneca back in the day, and um, it's just about you know this time of the year we're getting close to spring training. And, uh, you know, people have new jobs, you have new uh, desires, wishes, hopes, you know, maybe New Year's resolutions, all this kind of stuff. But every new beginning comes from some beginnings end. And that's where we're at right now. We're looking for new beginnings right now. And in order to arrive at that particular point, something's got to conclude. Before something can begin, normally something's got to conclude. And so for me, I'm really kind of revitalized mentally right now about new beginnings. That's, that's where I'm coming from. So what you're talking about here with these, obviously the, 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 these players going to the hall of fame, it's another, after this wonderful career that they've experienced now, what happens after that is going to be an absolutely new beginning. It's going to be regenerated. There's going to be, they're going to be in such demand and what they've uh, being able to talk about their accomplishments and everybody's going to be interested in what they have to say. This is a new beginning for this group of people. But Semisonic said it a couple years ago. I didn't realize it went all the way back to Seneca, but I really dig on that. And so here we come into February. Here comes spring training right around the corner. It's a new beginning for a lot of folks. I love that. And that Semisonic song you quoted from, Mm -hmm. Closing Time. There you go. (laughs) Oh, why didn't I bring that up? Perfecto. Dude, dude. (laughs) See, you're so good at that stuff. You're so good. See you next time, Joe. All right, brother. Thanks. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, 
Mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.